Well, welcome everybody. We're so excited that you're here. Um, and we're so excited to showcase some fantastic representatives of um, folks that have been working in the field of risk or diverse fields here. And um, so, yeah, I'm just really excited for you to listen to their, their story about what they do, where they've been, um, and some thoughts about maybe future areas for young aspiring researchers such as yourself. Um, and so what the, this is going to be, it's going to be about um, half the time we'll use where the speakers will introduce themselves. Actually, we have slides that are very prepared. So um, they'll introduce themselves, and then we'll have time for a facilitated discussion, Q&A session. Um, so that will probably take the, the rest of the, t the, the hour. Um, so that's the format that we'll use. We are waiting for one um, speaker, Amy Wong, who is either running late or she sent me a text that they were, she was on her way to Duke, and I was like, no, NC State. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so we'll see if that uh, comes, or if she comes or not. But um, I think we'll get started with David in a few minutes. But I, before I get started, I wanted to mention why we're doing this. At all, so I don't. Some of you have um, listened that or heard me say that we received some funding from the Society for Risk Analysis um, to grow the field of risk science here in the RTP area of North Carolina. So this has been really fantastic for me, um, honestly, because I've been a member and um, strong supporter of SRA for ten plus years. I met David um, a long time ago when I was living overseas at some of these events, and it's really, really been my like go-to organization for folks working on different areas of risk, like risk assessment, risk communication, risk governance, decision-making. Um, and it's also been a really interesting organization because they have a lot of different types of folks there. So it's not just academics, it's also a lot of regulators and um, government and also industry and NGOs that show up to these meetings. So it's been very fruitful for me to get to know people through this organization. Um, so when they had a call out for strategic proposals last year, I was like, yes, let's, let's go for this. Let's try to reinvigorate the local chapter. Um, David and Jennifer have been involved in this and as well as other people at Duke University. And so we're trying to get other people um, in the area also involved. Um, if you're interested at all, I put some flyers back there. You can contact me if you're interested in um, joining the local chapter, if you're like any more information about it. So with the topic of genetic engineering, or if you work in other emerging technologies, this, this is really a good group to know some of the fundamental tools that are out there to deal with these complex issues with emerging tech and, and risk. So welcome. My name is Jennifer Kuzma. I'm a professor in the School of Public Affairs, and I also co-direct the Genetic Engineering and Society Center. And while Clara is uploading my slides, I'm going to tell you my life story. So um, I have a PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology. That's my dirty little secret. Um, but I am now a professor in social sciences, and in fact, a distinguished professor in social sciences. Well, how does that happen? And I'm going to tell you, because my path was through risk analysis. And I think the really interesting thing about risk analysis is it's where you take scientific information and you have to make a decision. And it's really where the rubber hits the road as far as the use of scientific information in policy making. It's sort of the bridge between the natural sciences and the social sciences. So my first point is that paths are winding and often unplanned. So I tell this to my students that I advise, is that worry about what you're going to do for the next five years, because you never know where things are going to take you in the long run. Don't worry about your whole career. I would have never guessed that I would have started out in the lab doing biochemistry and on plant molecular biology and ended up where I am today. Never in a million years would I have been able to predict that. Um, so I was, I was interested in the broader issues of the use of science and policy making, and then later policy for technology, um, which, which is what I really study right now. And so what, what got me out of the um, research lab, I did a postdoc in plant molecular biology. I was not happy in the lab. I hated the detail-oriented nature of the work. Um, I could not keep my little pipette tubes straight, those Eppendorf tubes and the concentrations, all that detailed stuff drove me crazy. But what I was interested in, more interested in was the broader implications of science and technology and how that helps us make decisions. And so I found this AAAS fellowship on uh, risk, this is um, 
well, that's AAAS is what's missing there. I was a risk policy fellow, um, American Association for the Advancement of Sciences. They take scientists and engineers and they throw them into Washington, D.C., and they say, do policy making. And so I ended up in the USDA, Department of Agriculture, at the Office of Risk Assessment and Cost-Benefit Analysis. And I was lucky to have gotten one of these fellowships and ended up in this particular office. And there I was doing, um, what this office does in USDA is it reviews regulatory actions that are estimated to cost over $100 million. And this comes out of an executive order that Ronald Reagan actually passed, um, Executive Order 12866 on regulatory review. And so this office would review risk assessments and cost-benefit analysis that were done within the entire Department of Agriculture. So for the first six months, I didn't know anything about policymaking and, or very little about risk analysis. So I, I basically kept my mouth shut um, during my fellowship. Well, not really. But, um, but the second six months, once you get your feet wet and I learned the ropes and I learned more about what the office does, then I started to be able to contribute more to the position and the fellowship. And what I worked on was um, uh, uh, I worked on foodborne pathogens in, in food systems from farm to fork. And that was one of the things I worked on was E. coli 0157H7 and ground beef. And I was part of that risk assessment team. Um, so I think about after six months, I was able to start contributing to these teams. And then Salmonella enteritidis in, egg, in eggs as risk assessment. So both of these cause a lot of foodborne illness. They're very important. Um, and I had done some bacteriology and microbiology work during my graduate uh, career. I had discovered that bacteria produce isoprene. And so I think they felt that I would be a good fit for um, these bacterial um, uh, risk as farm to fork risk assessments. So this was really fascinating. Um, th these large teams working from all the way from on farm pathogens and contamination to all the way to the consumer and how much the consumer is getting and what that what the health implications of that are. And then I also worked a little bit on mad cow disease because in 1996 and 7, this was right around the time that mad cow disease was hitting the UK. It was being tied to the human illness, the new variant CJD, which is a horrible, deadly disease in humans. Uh, people, it's, it's always fatal. It has uh, horrible uh, consequences for people. Um, but during the process of working on these kind of three different big teams, um, I learned fault tree analysis, um, event tree analysis, decision trees, uh, Monte Carlo simulation for uncertainty analysis in, in different software programs, influence diagrams for risk assessment, and again, farm-to-fork modeling for foodborne pathogens. And so this is just uh, one example of a project I worked on there. And I was, my, my uh, module was the slaughter module. So that was a whole lot of fun for, for a vegetarian because I got to visit slaughter plants. And um, boy, that was an eye-opener. But um, I think it was important to see what was happening on the ground in order to model the pathogens going through the slaughterhouse and try to figure out um, their movement and the possible contamination routes. So again, I think uh, risk assessment is where scientific information is put into practice and management and policymaking. It's where the rubber hits the road. It's where values come into play in the interpretation of scientific information. Um, and it's also a place where multiple criteria can come into play in decision making. So it's not all about the environmental or health um, outcomes, but it's also about are we equitable, equitable in thinking about those outcomes? Um, are we transparent in doing the risk assessment? And so many policy uh, criteria come into play. Um, and then I've given this lecture before, but risk assessment is not a science. It's sometimes an art, right? Because what, what, where the rubber hits the road is that you have to take scientific information like a dose response curve and you have to set a level of what's safe. And that's a value judgment. It's not all about the science. It's also where your values come into play, how precautious you are, who gets to define what a risk is, who gets to decide when there's enough information, and who gets to decide what level is safe. So that's why I love this space, is because it's not only about the science and the modeling, but it's also about values and multiple criteria in making decisions. And um, I, won't, I did a little bit of risk policy, and, and this was more at the National Academy of Sciences, and that is another space of risk assessment that you could go to a think tank and do more risk policy and regulatory policy. It's another thing that you can do uh, with risk assessment or risk analysis expertise. Uh, so I worked on uh, biotechnology plants and uh, regulatory policy and also on bioterrorism risks. So an example of unintentional risks that you're looking for or intentional 
um, hazards that are introduced into food supplies. And then this is my last slide, but um, from there I went back into academe and I, I did at the Humphrey School teach courses on risk analysis and public policy and how to model risk and, and how to appreciate risk assessment and how um, it's used in policy making and governance. And so if people are interested in a course like this, I could teach like a one credit May master course or a two credit May master course. So let me know, especially the egg biofuse students. Um, and now what I do is risk governance and social science research. Um, so looking more at how we govern risks from a broad policy systems perspective. Um, I also was chair of the risk policy and law subgroup for the Society for Risk Analysis and secretary and council member of the whole society. So if you have questions about the society, you know, CAR is a, a great resource and I can perhaps answer your questions too. It's a great society to belong to. Andrew went to their meeting this year and he can tell you what a wonderful meeting it is. Very multidisciplinary, very multi-sector, government, industry, um, NGOs, think tanks, consulting groups. Um, so if you're looking for a multi-sector space that goes all the way from the technical parts of dose response modeling or ecological risk analysis to policy and law regarding risk, it's a great society to belong to. And that's my five minutes are up. So that's an introduction to sort of how I got into this. It was really the bridge that allowed me to transition from natural sciences to social sciences. So thank you. Hi, I'm David Berube. I'm a professor uh, of science communication at NC State. Been here for about 11 years now. Um, I would give you my history, but it goes on for too long. Um, so um, I've done almost everything in the book. I've been an actor, I've been a playwright, I've, been, I've worked at Paramount Studios for a year and a half. Um, uh, I've worked in multiple fields of political science. I've, 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 I've consulted in government, I've consulted in industry. Uh, so, I, so I've done it all, and I'm just going to uh, give you my interpretation of, of, of what this field's like, uh, and it's all described here. I mean, if you want to get a career and you want to have your career surrounded in, in, in the discussion of risk, uh, communication, risk analysis, uh, all fields of risk, um, you really only have uh, uh, three big options. You have academia, you have government, and you have business. Right? I mean, that's where your career is going to be. Um, in terms of academia, you can uh, try to get on the grant train which I've done for much too long, and um, I've been very fortunate to have, I don't know, 15 to $20 million in grants over, over the years. Um, I'm currently on a 5.5 with Duke and UNC as well on, um, on, on NANO. Um, the, uh, the, the grants are out there. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of times uh, you're gonna get calls if you're in the risk field to be on a grant mostly as window dressing rather than actually being uh, uh, doing some significant work. So it's incredibly important that you don't get trapped into this. I found a lot of folks just trapped into being window dressing on very large grants, and they don't do any research whatsoever. They just collect a small stipend and have a person or two to play around with. Risk communication jobs, well, guess what? There are almost none of those. Uh, they're really hard to find. Uh, and if you want to work in risk communication, it's usually not in academia. Right, when you want to work in risk communication, it's usually with industry, and um, uh, there's a lot of risk analysis jobs. You know, you can pretty much uh, find opportunities there. Um, often, very, very difficult to find these jobs when they're being advertised. You know, you've got to look at multiple locations in order to find that there's no central location. SRA, SRA, for example, really never got their act in here to put together uh, an employment um, a project. I was the chairman, I guess, of, of a division of, 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 of SRA. Um, my recommendation is risk plus. And my recommendation is make sure you have uh, um, a fundamental understanding of, of risk analysis or risk communication, but also get something else going in your life, right? I mean, because you'll find that uh, you can get into the field, I want to say ask backwards, because that's pretty much how it happens, right? I mean, you get an appointment at a university, do something, and then you work in risk and it's uh, it's a challenge uh, but you can do it there's always a few institutes or centers that pop up that might be interested in expanding into this area um, but it's often good to have something else that you can you know that you can really sell I mean I was an intercollegiate debater and did quite well and my first job in academia was to be intercollegiate debate coach after we won nationals for a few years in a row I quit 
and decided that I would go back into my love, which was uh, science and communication. But the way I wedged in was debate. The way I got into the field was serendipitous and uh, got uh, uh, center and institute work and then started getting grants and then uh, the, the real world's kind of nasty about grants because they, 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 they pick you. They just call you on the phone and go, hi, have you thought of taking your grant with you and coming to the University of Blank? which is exactly what happened here. I took a grant I had at the University of South Carolina with me and brought to NC State. And so for them, it was like, you know, here's this free professor, right? Because the indirects off the grant were pretty much paying my salary. Government, uh, agencies have positions in these. Uh, they might actually resurface again in a few years. Uh, we haven't had much hires recently. Uh, and I'm not sure uh, what, I, I know why, but, uh, you know why. Um, uh, no one gives a damn in D.C. about a risk right now. I mean, the EPA is literally you know, almost defunct. It's crazy what's going on. You go to the city, you walk through the buildings, the hallways are all empty. It's very, very, I know. I'm lecturing at the EPA in a few weeks. Um, it's, it's, it's a rough place, but it, it's a hell of a lot worse than it used to be. Uh, I Right now, I'm, I'm an SGE, special government employee. Uh, you don't make a lot of money doing it, but it keeps you fresh. So I work with the Food and Drug Administration. I'm on the Risk Communication Advisory Committee. So we sit around and try to figure out what the warnings mean, uh, whether they uh, might be effectual or not. And we have a fairly good group of folks. I'm also an SGE with the National Toxicology Program, which is part of the NIEHS, which is part of the NIH. And we do the same thing there, where you know my job is to look at the messaging about toxicology and try to make some sense out of it so the public can decode what uh, the toxicologist actually uh, means to do. Um, finally, the business world. Uh, anybody who's in risk is that I know that, 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 that's been reasonably successful started with an LLC. You know, they created their own company uh, and then uh, developed a consultancy based on the company. And uh, a few of my colleagues have, have made uh, nice jobs out of this. I created a center for us, uh, registered in North Carolina, called the Center for Emerging Technologies. It's mine. I signed it up. I give money to the state. I'm an official LLC, and we, Chris and I used it when we had a big project at Kraft Foods one year, um, and we do special projects. So if folks contact us and want us to work with them, and they don't want to go via the university route, which is grant support with indirects going to the university, or if it's a very small project, and it doesn't max me out on, on my, what's it, one-third of my base salary, then what ends up happening is that we do it through the LLC. And, um, you know, that could be almost anything. We did protocol development at Crowd, pretty much. You know, International Food Information Council. We had quite a few. We had quite a few. Um, there's not a lot of them out there. And uh, the reality is there's not a lot of them that are run by folks who actually have advanced degrees, you know, which is kind of handy dandy. Uh, most of them were a bunch of grad students who opened it up in their garage. Uh, and sooner or later, uh, they're up against the wall because they, they're asked to do things they, they don't know how to do. The only other thing is if you're in the risk field, man, better understand stats. I mean, get it together. You know, if, if you can't do path analysis, it's pretty useless. Uh, in the present time, uh, you know, you really got to get a foundational understanding of all this stuff. Minimal, if you can't do it, you at least have to be able to read it, right? You have to be able to take the, the material in the field and make sense out of it. And it's kind of wild. It's the weird world of LLC is that, man, you just wouldn't believe people are paid so much for knowing so little when you get to work with these folks. Uh, and uh, it's kind of entertaining. Uh, and you can do almost anything you want. And we had a great time at Kraft Foods. You know, and, um, you know, we visited some of their locations and uh, we talked to a lot of their people. But, I mean, we were pretty much educating them. They had almost no idea what they were doing when it came to uh, risk issues. The risk industry understands is insurance risk. That's what they understand. Because I had a project with Swiss Re for a few years. And Swiss Re is a reinsurance company. They insure the companies who insure people. No, they insure the companies who decide to insure other people for what they do. So when a big crisis happens and people turn to their insurance companies, they turn to their insurance companies in order to settle the dispute. To get to work for a reinsurance company, that is incredibly cool because it's fascinating how it works. 
you'll probably get bored after a year or two like I did, but it is fascinating. Um, if you want to know what else I, I, have, I do, I have a very large VDA. Explains everything else uh, I've done. I've had background in biology and in, uh, in, in psych and in communication and with NYU and yeah, I was an actor and I did work at Paramount. Thanks. We'll also hear from Chris, who's also an expert in risk communication. Um, so I'm just back in the area. Thank you. Uh, thanks for hosting this, Kara. Um, I appreciate it. Uh, there's a few familiar faces. I don't know if I'm a familiar face for a few of you. I was here uh, this last year to talk about some of my work on vaccines, where I uh, gave one of the keynotes, I guess the keynote, um, colloquium talks keynote, yeah. <laughs> I'm not that lofty. Um, but uh, to, to just kind of uh, explain who I am, um, I am a, a product of this place, master's, PhD, and postdoc, NC State, go Wolfpack. Um, after I graduated, um, I then took an appointment at, as, as an assistant professor of strategic communication in Singapore, um, at Nanyang TechU, Singapore. Um, I was there for six years. Wife and I had a baby. We said Singapore is way too damn far from family. And I said thank you for the contract extension. No thank you. And we moved home literally three weeks ago. Um, so we are back. Uh, we are here. And we took a leap of faith of leaving a tenure-track job. And we are in mid-air right now. Uh, and everything is chaos. So what I might be able to uh, afford you all is uh, what life is like as a risk scholar when you had a tenure track job and left it. And we can talk about some of that. Um, this is a map of the world. Here's where I'm from, Santa Rosa, California. Um, I got to go back for Christmas this last year, introduce my daughter to family there. It was great. Uh, during school as an undergrad, I moved to Chile, uh, spent about a year and a half down in Chile, then came back, finished up my BA in communication. Uh, I was very interested in political communication at the time, organizational communication. I then came out here to Raleigh to study those topics, uh, and I was finishing up a master's degree at the time that David had gotten that large grant where he bounced out of USC and came up here, and he would walk by the graduate student room, and every day I'd be in there thumping away at some paper where I was studying George W. Bush's war talk during State of the Union addresses, and he looked at me after about a week of walking by going, you're always here. Said, yeah, I'm doing my work, right? I like that about you. Let's talk. I have jobs available. <laughs> okay. And then he says, what do you know about nanoparticles? Not a damn thing, right? Uh, that actually was that serendipitous moment that Jennifer's touched upon, that David's touched upon, that launched my future in a completely different field. Uh, I then started and cut my teeth on that large National Science Foundation grant that David had, uh, which then inspired me to completely renew everything that I wanted to do in academia and my future career path. Um, so I finished a master's degree in communication, and then I stuck around for another four years and got a PhD in communication, rhetoric, and digital media. Uh, all of that time, I was barely studying rhetoric and digital media. Um, I was studying science and risk, right? Um, I was studying science and risk communication. Uh, after finishing those degrees, we did take the, the leap of faith after my wife and I got married, and I got a job offer in Singapore and said, let's, let's put it all to the test. Um, we'll, we'll test the marriage, we'll test the job, all of that. I uh, moved out there, it was wonderful. Singapore was great for us. Um, incredibly wonderful university, billion dollar budget. Um, it's now being, the new president is Subra Suresh, who recently stepped down after the Obama administration from running the NSF to take this job. Um, so it's a, it's a highfalutin kind of place. Um, and I was lucky there because the grant scene was great, had lots of resources to do good work with wonderful people around the world. Um, and now it's leap of faith time, right? We're back. Uh, and so I'm trying to figure out what my next step will be. Um, so David had the slide about academia, uh, government, and private industry. I'm trying to do all three right now. Um, I'm in talks here at NC State to come back, kind of potentially in a similar position as Cara as a senior research fellow, similarly at Duke with their Center on Risk. And as of two weeks ago, I started my own LLC and will host first clients tomorrow. Um, so life is crazy and busy. Um, to give you just a little bit of flavor, here's a guy who's got a three degrees, all of which are in communication. So what the heck do you do? Right? What do you do in risk? Um, this is what I do. These are, this is a, a funny word cloud wordle. Uh, all of the titles from my articles 
Uh, and so it's just the uh, titles of, of the articles. And so these are the kinds of things that I look at. Risk, science, research, communication. Uh, these are some of the kinds of venues. I don't look like a typical communication scholar. In fact, when I was talking with people about future tenure at my old university, part of the problem was everyone at Society for Risk Analysis knew me amazingly. But when I went to places like the International Communication Association, they didn't know me as much. So I started actually looking for risk areas where I could publish in journals that were more traditional communication journals, like Journal of Health Communication. So I actually started changing that road some, kind of like what Jennifer was talking as well, to make myself more marketable to more people. Um, so now I could enter into an associate level job as a professor of communication, or I could go environmental science, right? Um, it depends on the right fit. Um, now we moved back specifically to this geography, so we have, you know, ca I'm casting a wide net in a small pond now, right? Um, and trying to figure out what's going to be the future direction um, for me. Here are some of the kinds of places that I've done work with. Some of this was with David and Jennifer, uh, and some of it has been over the last few years on my own uh, in Singapore. Um, so I did groups, uh, did work with groups like EpiHack and Pfizer in Singapore. Te Taiwahenu O'Hara Tonga is actually a collection of uh, Maori tribes that I was working with on the North Island of New Zealand on obesity issues. Um, and so a lot of what I actually do um, is more strategic planning and communication campaign work. And that's where uh, David said risk plus, right? Uh, this is my plus, is I don't just understand risk and risk communication, but I also have that foundational grasp on more of the PR side. So my official title has been a strategic communication theorist and scholar, right? So I look at um, trying to approach issues through uh, different forms of communication theories with this kind of applied approach looking specifically at how can we use good data to improve public health kind of communication or uh, environmental well-being kind of communication. And so this tends to tie into communication campaigning in some way. So I oftentimes come from this background of what we call commsure. Any of you know the conference AEJMC? Uh, they have a group called Comsure that looks specifically at communication of uh, science, health, environment, and risk issues. And they lump them all together. So risk becomes linked up with environmental communication, with science communication, with health communication. And we see that because there's a lot of overlaps here, right? We all speak pretty much the same language. And then I'm a scholar of persuasion. Uh, and so I look at these kinds of approaches and then I try and tie them to real world issues where I can make hopefully a, a good positive impact on public health and safety. So uh, more recently I've been looking at vaccines uh, and then uh, synthetic biology. We just have a, a new book that came out this month edited by uh, Jennifer and I and a couple of colleagues in the DOD. Uh, and then uh, some work on geoengineering, uh, all with the ideas and goals that this kind of data can oftentimes be a first step for us to uh, improve communication outwardly to the public. So I like to study applications that are new and uh, oftentimes misunderstood and oftentimes have value-based objections among the public so that way we can hopefully improve communication as we go forward in the future. So it's really a data-driven uh, exercise on how we can create what will turn into the next public engagement or the next communication campaign. Got a couple other slides we don't need to get to. I'll say thank you. All right, thank you. Um, next we're going to hear from Paul Price from EPA. So this is going to give you another um, take on another uh, part of risk governance, specifically risk assessment, and he has a really interesting background um, with, in a lot of different sure. sectors. So, said this would be interesting to showcase as well. So, welcome. Okay. We're happy to have you. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, right now, I am at the Environmental Protection Agency. My last day is officially three weeks from now, when I will retire which means I can go do work that I don't have to be paid for, that it's fun to do, because my retirement has been, been, been paid for by my previous uh, connections. So uh, you've heard, I think a common theme you can, you can draw from the, the first three people who spoke here is that diverse and complex and meandering careers, and I am absolutely no different. So I started out, got my BA in chemistry, um, but was very active in Theology, I was one of those guys who cornered you on campus and talked to you about Jesus. And, but I also, I also got my BA in chemistry. So I went out and got a job working, working on it for uh, the state of Maryland for, for uh, doing samples of, of uh, environmental information. Um, 
And then after doing that for a couple of years, I said, I need to go off to seminary because I've been serious about this and actually study what it is I've been pushing for the last three or four years. So I went off to a great uh, seminary. It was, in the, it was on the campus of the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. And if you've never gone to Vancouver, Vancouver shows you what God could do if he had the money. Um, <laughs> Uh, while I was there, after one year, it became very clear that I was not interested in theology as a career. What I really wanted to do was work where science and ethics came together. So I went back and got a master's degree in environmental engineering. So I'm one of the few people you know who went from seminary to wastewater engineering in a matter of a few years. But with that diverse background, I was in a position to really embrace risk assessment when I got the opportunity to do that. So I did, I did my master's at um, University of Maryland, which is just up the street from EPA's headquarters in Washington, D.C. And uh, so when I finished my master's, I'm looking for a job, and I got a, my wife's got a baby on the way. We just bought a house, so we need some income. And so I went to EPA and, looked for, and, and said, um, I've got my environmental engineering. I'd like to have a job. And they said, well, we're not hiring any environmental engineers. We're shutting down the Clean Water Act at this point. But... Tosca just got passed, and we need exposure assessors. And I said, what's an exposure assessor? And so I'm sitting there across the table, and I'm asking this person, so I'm an engineer, and they said, you need to be an exposure assessor. I said, what is it? They come back, and they say, well, you need to be able to do this, mass transfer into this, crossover skin boundaries, diffusion layers, inhalation rates, mass transfer. I said, I can do all that. That, that I studied on an engineering. He says, well, we want somebody with experience. And I said, okay. Who else is hiring? They said, well, the next branch over is hiring. I go to the next branch, and they said, we need exposure assessors. I repeated everything I heard from the previous assessment, and went down the exact list, and at the end of it, I said, I can do it. And they said, you're hired. And that's how I had in one event. And so that, again, is those, those transitions um, uh, that happen in your life, and it's how I got into exposure assessment, which led to risk assessment. It also means is that you need to learn that when you take a job interview, and you go there, and it doesn't go well, learn from it. Learn what didn't happen, learn what they were looking for, and use that in your next application. So now I'm at EPA, and EPA hired me in a program office. They're not using any science at all, but I learned in a program office, what do you have to have in order to have a regulation? How do you determine um, uh, what is the level of information sufficient to justify it? How do you deal with the legal requirements? How do you respond to comments that come in? And so I, I was there and had a chance to watch um, uh, uh, regulations being written under Tosca for uh, requiring testing of, of uh, different compounds, and I, I helped do the exposure sections for drinking water standards. All right, um, but EPA didn't let me do science. They were they, they just wanted me to summarize science and write uh, support uh, materials for it. So, the American Petroleum Institute, which um, which I met through the Society of Risk Analysis. So that's the other thing to take away from this. Societies are the place where you find your next job. It's you find out who are the people who could use the same skills as you do and pay better and have nicer offices. And API had nicer offices than EPA. So I found myself in the American Petroleum Institute critiquing the regulations that I wrote in my previous job. And it was great. I was really good at critiquing them because I knew where the weak spots were. Um, but I also learned about how do you defend a product when everyone thinks the product is causing cancer. How do you convince people that benzene is being released from refineries and that's okay? And then that taught me how, how when you are trying to defend the indefensible, your fallback is science, is that you fall back to the facts. You don't try to sell people on ideas. You defend everything that you do and you expect everyone is going to disbelieve you. All right. After American Petroleum Institute, I, I started to get good at this, so now I want to go after the big bucks and I went into consulting. Um, consulting is, pays better than working for trade associations, it pays better than EPA, but it's very risky. Companies come and go. They last as long as their contracts go. And um, you really have to be able to jump from one project to another. So I got hired and I started to work about fish consumption and, per, and uh, uh, persisting chemicals that accumulate in fish and learned about it. And I, that's why I learned how to do Monte Carlo modeling, simulation modeling, determined exposure from them. Um, but the job went away, so I had to learn something else. And then the military needed help on risks from using non-lethal weapons. And these are things like tasers and tear gas and stun grenades. And trying to figure out how, how can these things be effective for what they want to do, but not leave bodies on the ground that the 5 o'clock news will photograph and make the, the Army look bad. So it was, it was trying to develop uh, uh, risk ratios uh, uh, to justify when a non-lethal weapon was appropriate for use. Um, I also got a chance to work with uh, Health Canada to, to do high-volume screening-level risk assessments to rank thousands of chemicals at once. Um, 
the consulting went well, and I got tempted to go out there and say, well, I would like to take this black hat I've been wearing, working for industry, and wear the white hat for a while, and I had the opportunity to do that. They needed software to characterize exposure to pesticides from diet, and the only software that was available was proprietary. And so your regu regulations to protect you from pesticides were being done on software that was only available to EPA and industry. No one else could see the analysis. So we, did, we came out and founded a nonprofit, uh, I and some of my coworkers, to create uh, software that would be publicly available. And it was a great gig, lasted about five years, and then the money went away. So I needed a job. Um, and there was little company. The other reason to go to professional society meetings, the other reason to focus on science, is that you can make big jumps if people know you are a credible scientist. So I was working on a, 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 for a nonprofit who was writing software to, to do something. But when I worked with people in industry, I was always very objective. This is what you're trying to achieve. This is If you do good science, I support it. I, I'm glad to build on your science. I'm glad to share my science with you. But I stay away from the advocacy side of it. But that allowed me, when I needed a job and put up feelers, Dow Chemical said, yes, we'd like to have somebody who's, who's got, at this point, I'd had 30 years in the field doing this stuff. Um, we'd like to hire you uh, over to work. And, and they gave me the opportunity to do some really interesting research and got me into my current area of interest which is risks from exposure to mixtures of chemicals. Um, I thought I'd retire from, from, from Dow, and I got a phone call. It says, would you like to come back to EPA as a Title 42 position? Title 42 positions are great. They pay really well. They can, they can exceed the GS system of payment um, and, uh, and, and can pay you uh, consistent with what Dow Chemical does. This is a nice way to finish your career. And I've really enjoyed it. And, uh, 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 but when I got back to, to, to the Office of Research and Development, well, they really expected me to deliver. Um, I, uh, I was expected to lead projects. I was expected to make really cutting-edge analyses. But they, uh, and, and they gave me the opportunity to, to do that. So we built very complex models of uh, use of consumer products using agent-based models of decisions about using consumer products and um, uh, to, to generate estimates of aggregate and cumulative exposures to multiple chemicals. They also funded me to do work on the adverse outcome pathway and how that can be used to organize uh, mixture toxicology. And that's where I'm finishing up now, and it has been a fun ride. Thank you all. So last but not least is Amy Wong. Um, so speaking of chemicals and risk assessment um, strategies, so this is in Amy's um, forte. So I'm Amy Wong. I currently work for National Toxicology Program at NIEHS. Um, I'm from Taiwan, and this is probably what, where most people know about Taiwan. But in my memory, it's more like this. <laughs> and the, if you have to let me pick, there are two things you can actually get in the United States. There are the bubble tea invented in Taiwan, and uh, there's shaved ice. So I, my study has been uh, all over the place. Um, I'm more of a generalist than a specialist. So I, in college, I went to um, veterinarian school, and so I was interested in wildlife um, on top of the regular companion animal um, treatment. And, then I had the opportunity to volunteer for the Cetacean Strengthening Network. So even though I'm showing you a picture of dolphin jumping, but almost all of the dolphin I saw are actually already beached and died. But it was a great learning experience um, to know about um, wildlife and different things, uh, including um, the interest in how the dolphins can tolerate lethal concentrations of mercury in their body, but don't seem to suffer any health effects. So that leads to my graduate study in the US, um, look at how mercury and selenium work together. Well, more of fighting with each other. And so it's this high selenium internal concentration in the dolphin's tissue that protect them from the mercury. And from there, I wanted to continue studying dolphins, but there's no funding. Like most people will have experience at some point. So I switched to study something that has funding, arsenic. 
So for my PhD, I look into the mechanism how arsenic causes urinary bladder cancer. That's how I exposed to um, rat studies, and uh, um, it was a long process. Um, eventually, we found out um, my, heart, my hypothesis cannot be supported, and magically, we still got it published. <laughs> well, they, we did see changes in other things like the tissue morphology, or even though it was not decreasing the DNA repair capacity. So for all of you there who have negative results, package it up into a story, not dwell on the negative part, or emphasize what everybody thought is true actually does not happen in this specific case of your study. So it was a long process, seven years, and it, now after a long while, I had to change advisor in order to graduate. And after I changed my advisor, I defended and graduated within six months. So there's hope if there's, you want to talk to me afterward. And so I wanted, really wanted to do something more about policy or risk assessment. Because during the study on the arsenic, I see how those signs take into bigger consideration that EPA was setting the drinking water standard. And so I look up, I wanted to do something with emerging technologies, which turns out to be nanotechnology. And there were postdoc positions open at EPA. Well, granted, I had no experience with nanotechnology, but at Virginia Tech, there was a book on nanotechnology. So I request the book, I read it, and I interviewed, and I got the job. And so I was able to do comprehensive environmental assessment on the nanotitanium dioxide. This was such an early time. I read every single PubMed publication on nanotitanium dioxide at the time. It's impossible now, uh, but at the time there were, there were less than a thousand on the health effects of it. And from there, I keep writing because we couldn't really do an assessment because we knew so little about it. So I ended up taking a second postdoc um, to do high-throughput high screening of nanomaterials bioactivities at, at NCCT, part of the task cast. So now we are generating data. Um, of course, nanomaterials are not as straightforward as chemicals that can dissolve in DMSO. And so there was a lot of customization for the nano part of the task casting screening and screening. But I also get to learn a lot more about project management, collaborations with other um, groups. So when after a short stunt in industry, um, during which I only published one paper. I really want to get back to more of the publication. And so I jump strip to, um, to National Toxicology Program, which is a great fit for somebody like me because I like all kinds of things. And they, the way the National Toxicology Program, my group is on writing the report on carcinogens, which is something that you look at chemicals, biological agents, Ex, um, exposure scenarios or um, professions, all kinds of conditions, and to see if they increase the risk of cancer. So for a journalist, this is really fun, and you get to pay to sit there to read papers, solve puzzles, and there's no more every four hours check on your sick rat kind of stuff, and you know you get to wear exposed toes shoes at work, um, <laughs> and you can have long, long, no, flowing sleeves and stuff, and, and people respect you because you're the one to tell them what all of those information mean. They all see parts of it, but none of them have the time to look all of it, and then you get to do some kind of summarization to tell them how confident you are with the evidence and what kind of hazard identification you can give to the substance under review. 
Um, so this is where I am now, and uh, it's a different way of doing research. This is almost completely on paper and on computer. Um, you take other people's research results. Sometimes you take more or less raw data, like the gene expression tax 21 results, and do your own analysis. But it gets to summarize to something, knowledge, not just data anymore. And you can go beyond what individual studies prevent, uh, presented to you because you're looking at the broad scopes. That's part of the reason those kind of reports take a long time. Um, you know, typically, we have one new version out every two years. And of course, it's not just one substance. There are teams working on. Um, but before you say anything about how inefficient government are, I want to point out there are a lot of regulations, review process, and sometimes you have the report there and wait for several months before somebody else hire up, sign off before you can move on to the next stage. Um, but it is fun and um, you get to use all sorts of scientific information, work with others. So I'm happy to answer any questions you might have. And sorry for being late. I'm terrible with directions. And that's just me, not all Taiwanese. <laughs> about the, the winding road, the puzzle makers, like where you take puzzle pieces and then you, you make the full puzzle, try to communicate about this. So um, I was originally envisioning you guys to come up here, but since you're all nice there, maybe do you just want to stay there? Or would you like to come up or just stay up there? <laughs> yeah, you're right. Okay. Dad, you don't want to get looked into the questions. So I mean, everyone's very communicative, so we can have you know an organic conversation. But I did have some questions like afforded you yesterday. Um, so you kind of answered some of the the early questions that I had, like how did you get to where you were? What are the factors that got you to where you are? Um, and how has the field changed um, since you since you started a little bit? At least Paul and I were chatting about that before. Um, but one thing, actually, to be honest, I'm really um, inter interested in is like, what are what are the main challenges that you all face right now in your in your field in a post 2020 world now? And it's not just science challenges, but I'm imagining you know probably funding challenges, um, communicating, getting public um, stakeholders on board with some of these topics. So anyway, I want to hear from you. Like, what are the biggest challenges that you face? Um, I'll just say, you know, working on technologies and biotechnology and risk, it's not a very popular area in any situation. I mean, in universities, they're more about the promotion of biotechnology and intellectual property. And whenever you talk about risk or governance, you are not the most popular person in the world. Um, I mean, so I think that's one challenge, and that also relates to the funding. There has never been funding for risk analysis in academe. I mean, I think, you know, you have government agencies that do it, but there is not a lot of money for the actual conduct of risk analysis. Risk science, yes, perhaps, but to actually do the meta-analysis and bring the, be the puzzle person to bring these together, I think we need more neutral academic or independent groups to be able to get funding to, to do that. Mm -hmm. I think that's, I think you hit on the head. The, uh, there are two things to consider in what Jennifer said also is that these grants come and go. You need to find a career that allows you to sustain yourself during those trough periods. Because it can get really challenging. And in academia, no one's ever figured out where to put it. You know, when you when you say where where's your risk classes, they go, Well, there's one in communication and there's a, there's sort of one in statistics and and there might be one in business administration. And it never coalesced into its, its field. You know, where biochem did, when biology and chemistry got together and biochemistry surfaced, or environmental studies, and that surfaced, right? That happened, and it was, it was fruitful. The risk world just never got to that point. And it might be because some of the stories we have to tell aren't really pretty sometimes, you know? and. Um, and media treats what we do with 
great verb. They get so excited when we discover something really evil that they can take and, and, and amplify and get people to read their, 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 their stuff. Mm -hmm. And on the internet, you know, where someone just posts random stuff about literally pretty bad research. But with, those, with that poll, you know, it's really hard to put together a profession. I working for federal government and for a program that the general report that is mandated by the Congress, I don't face those funding challenges. Um, but but dealing with the potential lawsuit is heavy on my mind. Because even though the report on consensus itself is not a regulation, um, many of the federal agencies and the state government use that to set their regulation. And so when something is declared as a potential carcinogen, there's a lot of motivations for people who use it or, um, or manufacturers to look at very deep to see every single thing they can pick at and to discredit your conclusion. Um, it started with rats and mice are not humans. They don't represent humans. Narrow it down, and this layer by layer, they try and try. And normally, this will be just an exercise in your mind and how to communicate. But when there's a lawyers involved, it's not all that. You say things that you have said before, you never give them new information that have not gone through public review or panel discussion. And, uh, you know, so even the writing is very different. And um, yeah. I hope it stops here that we don't actually get serious and that I have no, I love to be on the stage, but I have no desire to be in the courtroom. And, so one thing I'm personally really interested in is like trying to decrease that space between the time that it takes um, science to produce the risk assessment outcomes and the decision making process, right? Because we often with new technologies, new materials, you know, I work with people in the material science department, they're coming up with new materials all the time. And so um, to understand the risks on different ecological organisms and human health under different exposure scenarios, that is just going to take a lot of time and a lot of money. And meanwhile, you know, you need to make decisions. Can we use this on the market or not? And we need to know now. And so I don't know, like, what, what's the future? Like, are we going to have to revamp our risk assessment strategies? Or how does, what do you think this is looking like? The reason why I was really excited about the opportunity to come back to EPA was that I was coming back to the Office of Research and Development, and the Office of Research and Development is trying to put their arms around it. Uh, the National Academy of Science published a book in 2010, 2011 called Toxicity in the 21st Century, and essentially it said we cannot rely upon animal-based toxicology in order to reach consensus over what is the safety of our products. We have to do it faster. We have to be able to, to, to do it cheaper. We cannot generate the, the mountains of dead carcasses that will have to be done to evaluate all of the hundreds of thousands of chemicals that are in commerce. We need ways to, to address that. And that was the charge of the new Center for Computational Toxicology. It was established at, at EPA. And so I had the opportunity to come back and work with them. And that's really what the goal is, is to say, can we uh, rapidly evaluate uh, a chemical um, based upon in vitro uh, data, and maybe can we even do it on the basis upon chemical structures, knowing that the chemical structures may be a lousy criteria to decide on it, but it may be enough to allow to make a decision uh, over the safety of something if the potential for exposure is extremely small. You might be able to say, well, even if it is highly toxic, it would be okay. Um, and so that is currently the um, revolution, the, the, the paradigmatic shift uh, that's happening in the field of chemical risk assessment, that we're moving from animal-based toxicology to these high-throughput, cheaper, faster, um, but different ways of measuring toxicity. And right now we have 50 years of regulatory toxicology um, that has to unlearn animals are the way to do it. 
um, and learn that these new techniques can uh, also provide insight. And we have to develop the policies that says this is how you use the data, this is how you translate that data, and this is the scientific evidence that says it's okay to not do a two-year rodent bioassay or not to do a two-generation reproductive assay, but still be able to believe that you have um, reasonable information that will allow you to make regulatory safety decisions on cancer or reproductive effects based upon these new technologies. And that's, that's what's really exciting about this time. The other thing's exciting about it is that all the people who are my age are retiring. And so that means job openings. So when this administration is over, whether it's this, this, this round or four years from now, look for big hiring movements because the agencies are losing all the people who they hired in the 70s and the 80s. We're all, we're all going the way of the world. And so hold on, there should be jobs in the federal government. Yeah, I agree with the looking at the the science differently. This is a very exciting part. There are some that we can look at the mechanism to say that this chemical would induce those effects, even though we don't have the two-year end results of cancer, we know the sequence of events. So if you can induce those early events, you're likely to have the subsequent event. Of course, this doesn't mean 100% go this way. It will be nice if it's so simple. But you have other supporting evidence, the structured, other bioactivities, and shorter-term studies and all that um, to support it. And the other more tiny kind of um, help your day easier is more of the automation. No, and no, the AI, the text mining to help you get around the large amount of data quickly, as well as people are developing tools to look at task 21 results and summarize it to the pathway um, level of information for you. And so those are all very nice. And of course, every tool requires some learning curve. So if you, you have time to learn a few really well, not just being able to play with 200 of them that's on the web, learn a few really well that really help. And of course, none of this applies to biological hazards, which many of us in this room care about. <laughs> so we're even further, we're well further behind the chemical risk assessment paradigm. It's much more difficult when you have a invasive species or if you're considering the risk of putting a GM plant or a GM microbe or a GM animal into an ecosystem. We're, we're really exploring new territory here. I mean, there are, there are some paradigms you can use, like USDA's um, pest risk, risk paradigm and so forth, but there's even more uncertainty, ambiguity, less knowledge, um, more, um, more um, chance for sporadic or black swans, if you will, unintended sort of um, high, uh, low probability, high consequence um, events. So I think I've always dealt with biological hazards, either microbes or, or plants or what have you, and that makes it even more, I think, um, complicated and we aren't as sophisticated as the TOX21 necessarily in that realm, although there is some some scientific information, it's not as sophisticated as the chemical risk assessment paradigm. Great point. So I realize that the time is up, um, but before everyone leaves, is there anything else, like did, did you have any other piece of advice for young students or fa faculty member um, trying to get into risk, like other than be patient, there could be government jobs, don't be afraid <laughs> of taking the winding path, um, be the puzzle maker with puzzle pieces, what else do you have any read. thoughts? Read. Oh, sorry. I, think it's, I think actually read. think it's a great field for jobs. I really do. I mean, I for especially consulting in the industry right now, I think more and more people are looking for risk people who can do risk analyses and modeling or communication on the communication side. I've, I've seen quite a bit of it. So yeah, I tell every every entry in my, in my career, I say first read. The second thing I say is like you know, if you're going to really get into this thing. <laughs> You also have to develop talents in a whole bunch of different fields, and one of the ones I haven't really got the chance to talk about was, you know, you kind of have to learn how to invest and make some money and put some money away and have some money to do what you want to do so you're not in a situation where, you know, you're broke all the time. Uh, and a lot of you guys are in situations where you're broke all the time. I've been very fortunate to have a good financial mind, and I've invested for years, and I've I have a great lifestyle. What do you say? You ain't got no money to worry about. Well, 
Uh, my advice for you all, if you're looking at going on the job market in two years, start reading the job calls now. Yeah. Start seeing what jobs are out there now so that way you can make sure that over the next short term you are actually doing the things that will get you through the exact job calls that you're looking at. Um, make sure that the jacket you're going to put on later is going to be one that you're going to fit and grow into. Um, so if you're looking for you know, a couple of years from now, I'll start thinking about the job market, you're going to be competing against me. <laughs> right. Uh, so think about seriously, like what what will my professional demeanor be like, and what what are what are people looking for now? Uh, a lot of the job calls are changing. They are much more data driven than I saw five years ago. Um, so you do need to really know your stuff when it comes to understanding understanding uh, the analytical side and being able to not just understand it but do it. Uh, and you know when you go on the interviews, they put you in front of the computer now. And they say, here's the data set. Um, you said that you could do this. We'll see in 45 minutes. Right? So you've got to be able to, to walk the walk as well. Um, so that's, that's my, my two cents. And best of luck. Happy to chat. Thank you. My advice actually would be networks. Like get to know people at different events or organizations. You know, build those connections. Because um, then they can know you and your strengths as well. So, so with that, you're welcome to join us for lunch. Hopefully all of you can join us for lunch as well. We can continue the conversation there. Um, and if you have any questions, you know, feel free to reach out, I think, to all of us. We, we love you know, um, talking with you and, and sharing any insights that we may have on careers and risk and all the fun it can be. So, okay, well, thank you. Thank you all for coming.